folks back here with uh, Senate President Kathy Giesel. Hello, Senate, Senator Giesel. How you doing? Good, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Your second time on the podcast. Yes. First time I just looked it up, it was March 3rd. <laughs> wow. So, right? Middle of the session. Yeah. Seems like longer ago than that, but... Is that seven, over seven months? <laughs> yeah. Has anything happened since then? It's been kind of, has, has much gone on? Than <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, probably the biggest thing that probably impact, impacts people the most is the crime legislation that was passed. Right, yeah. That gets forgotten. But uh, we, in essence, repealed Senate Bill 91. Uh, corrected all of that. Um, I was, of course, one of five senators that voted against the original bill. Mm-hmm. Um, there are only two of us left uh, that voted against it. But this was the number one priority of the Senate majority. And so we're pretty pleased um, to be successful in passing that. And, and of course, the Schneider loophole was another piece. All right, the, that the was guy also, who kidnapped that woman. Right, yeah, yeah. And, of course, um, that was a big, important correction also in, in our laws. Yeah, there's another thing. It's, it's, it's different, but it's a little bit similar in the Native woman. I don't know if you heard... She was kind of killed, and they found a hard drive or an SD card. It's really bizarre, and yeah. it's been kind of in the news a lot yeah. you know, the last couple of days. Yeah, terrible. The um, the crime legislation, so the governor signed it, I guess, was it summer? Maybe it was during the session, wasn't it? Was, it? it wasn't it in June? I'm pretty sure it was in June, because I was just looking that up the other day. So, I think it was in June. So when a bill gets passed, or mm-hmm. in this case repealed, or kind of some, some new new laws, right. uh, how long does it take to really go in? Because... It doesn't go into it goes into effect immediately, but it doesn't. You don't see the results usually immediately. It takes time, right? Right. So uh, let's say the bill uh, gets passed in the Senate, the House hears it, they pass it, then we send it to our legal folks to take one last look to make sure that it's worded properly and no commas were left out where there should have been one. So that takes two or three days, and then it gets transmitted to the governor. Uh, he has a period of time, a number of days, depending if we're in session or out. Um, and he has his Department of Law look at it, and then he has the ability to either sign it or let it become law without a signature or veto. So so it takes about a month. And then once it was signed into law, what are some of the mechanisms? I mean, some things were repealed, some things were added. I mean, some sentences and different different uh, misdemeanors and felonies. How long does that take to, I guess, get through the system? Well, then the system has to take it and make regulations out of it. So the so statute, the law itself is rather broad, but the regulations get down into the nitty gritty uh, and, and do detailed work. So that varies on how complex those regulations are going to be. So I'm thinking now about health care, mm-hmm. uh, health care legislation. Sometimes the writing of those regulations can take several months, and then they go out for a 30-day comment period, and then they come back to the department to review the comments and determine if there is validity to comments that oppose it or saw some flaw in it in the regulations. So then that process could take up to a year. How often do you see a bill pass, maybe a bill you you wrote or a bill you supported become become law and then some of the regulations become not what you thought when you passed the bill? 
Very good question. Look at me, I'm on fire. So, Senate Senate Bill 169. This bill was to open the door for more behavioral therapists to actually be able to treat patients. Right now, we we had in place a restriction that required a psychiatrist to be present in that clinician's office 30% of the time. Well, we don't have enough psychiatrists in the state to do that. So, it was limiting how much uh, clinical social workers, uh, clinical psychologists, people like that could serve our Medicaid population who needs behavioral health services. We have waiting lists up to two years in Anchorage. That's ridiculous. And that's in Anchorage, the population center. So my bill opened the door. Well, the regulations they wrote didn't reflect my intent. So public comment also opposed how still restrictive those regulations were. So they went back and rewrote them and have finished now a second public hearing, uh, public comment period. And it appears that now they've met my intent and they're about to become law go into effect. And you're a nurse practitioner, right? So Correct. You, you have some experience with that. Yes. So we're talking a year and a half here. So, so once it leaves the legislature, once the governor signs it, it goes to the departments, whatever the bill is, yes. and they deal. I mean, can you can you call them and say, "Hey, I don't like what you're doing. This is not what I wanted." But I did call them. Oh, on the nice. behavioral health. <laughs> I did call them, and they said, "Well, they're out for public comment. You know, we'll we'll deal with it." The public comments when they came in, and so the supporters of my bill, of course, wrote in lots of public comments, which prompted the rewrite of the regulations. Do you, do you go to the like, commissioner level, or do you go to the level of the people? I don't know, director or. Well, the commissioner um, directed us to the portion of, well, the behavioral health division under the department. Yeah. So So the other other big thing was um, the dividend, which is still kind of the thing. But I was in Juneau and saw you there a lot. Oh, yeah. And there was, it was 3,000 and then it was, I don't know, 1,200. It was eight, six, it was kind of up and down and eventually it settled on 16. But talk a little bit about the session because at first, the first version of the Senate bill the budget was three thousand um, early on, and then there was—I guess that was probably some kind of negoti- negotiating point—and then it got really kind of crazy toward towards the end. Um, I was going to ask you to talk a little bit about that, but then also how it's been being Senate president in a in a caucus where you know we all know very in the public with Senator Birch passing away, it's very split on the dividend issue. Um, how's that been? Man- I mean, people are very passionate on both sides. There's a lot of emotion. Um, a lot of emotion, and I think the public is uh, certainly has an opportunity to learn more about the history of Alaska, the Alaska Statehood Act, why subsurface rights were given to the state versus to individuals. Um, though an individual can get subsurface rights, I mean, uh, Senator Click Bishop is a minor. He has mineral rights on the property he leases, so um, it is possible. Um, Yes, the the dividend was controversial. We did put in, our Senate finance team did put in a $3,000 dividend in the budget originally as a starting point for a discussion. Uh Um, And the uh, Senate Republicans uh, were divided uh, in terms of whether $3,000 was the right amount or a smaller number. So lots of negotiation happened, um, and that just takes time. But, but that's how our government was designed to be. Uh, it wasn't meant to be nimble and innovative. 
That's what the private sector does. And so um, we a, took our time. It's a big ship. You got to. It's a big ship. Turn, turn the rudder. Slowly. Exactly. Well, what I've talked to a lot of folks about, and I've been very upfront about, I, I think you should use a smaller di- dividend and not, to avoid taxes and to, you know, have a decent budget. And that's been my position for a long time. But I try to talk to folks, and I think a lot of people don't, maybe more so now with the discussion, but the, the permanent fund was created in 1976 by, by a vote. And the dividend didn't come until six years later. And it was designed for, based on longevity, that was challenged. There was another challenge in the 90s based on if you're a permanent resident. So, so the whole way it started is very different than what it is now, what it, what it became basically, is who, who qualified and, and how much it was going to be. And I feel like sometimes the public doesn't, it's hard to kind of trans, transmit that information to somebody who, who might just say, hey, you know, formula, three thousand, like that, that's it. Is that, is that a challenge you've dealt with or have you, have you seen that, I guess? It is very challenging. Um, the other thing that the public didn't notice, I guess I would say, is that a couple years ago, we changed how the calculation would happen. That is to say, we went to a percent of market value. So it limits how much money can come out of the earnings reserve, can come out of the fund itself to be distributed and used for government. The other thing I think the public isn't aware of is since the creation of the the dividend, government was supposed to have half of the amount of money distributed. And government has never taken its half. It, the first time that it took its half was last year. So um, that's that's new. And I think the public missed that. Do you, th- do you think my position has kind of been the, the whole, if you go back and a lot of people quote Jay Hammond and, and they take half of what he said because he was very much in favor of an income tax. People leave that out yes. a lot of times. But the whole point, you can look at people said, how do you know this? And I said, I can watch TV. I mean, they had debates. You know, it's not like 100 years ago. Yes. But it was to fund government at a time when oil could no longer do that. So it was turning a non-renewable resource into a renewable resource through the permanent fund. And, you know, I believe we're to that. We're basically at that point now. And to me, it doesn't matter if you get there now or if it was 10 years ago or if it's in 50 years, no matter what, whenever that point comes, people don't want to give up. The dividend, even though that was what it was created for. I mean, do you, do you agree with do you agree with that, or do you see what I'm saying? Oh yes, of course, <clears throat> of course. Um, I understand that Governor Hammond ha- was kind of all over the map with his ideas on the dividend, and so um, it was. He talked a lot. He talked a lot and had lots of different ideas. I have a memo from him that he sent to um, the Senate President at the time, and uh, it said that. The, the dividend, um, part of the earnings of the fund should go toward infrastructure. 50% of it should be divided among infrastructure and the other 50% for projects and uh, the dividend. So he really saw it as, as a funding source to build the state. But that was just one memo because he had other memos that had different things in it. So it's it, you know the fact of the matter is we have to deal with the issues today. Yeah, we have to look at it today. I'm not sure if it was no. That's a good point. I think people want to go back, and it's it's easy to go back. But we're here. Another uh, thing I heard, and I don't know if it was him, but there was a, at one point a discussion about a a split with municipalities. Have you heard about that? Oh no! There was, there was hmm. a discussion where they say half goes to the hmm. you know some goes to the dividend, and then some goes to the municipalities, so they can use it for their own you know infrastructure, their own projects. Sure. Kind of the old revenue sharing. Yes. Model that I guess mostly went away, it seems like. 
Well, it certainly has diminished uh, in the last few years. Uh, we did have revenue sharing. You're right. So you were your Senate president. That was your first time as Senate president. But you've been in the Senate since 20, 2010, right? Uh, my first session was 2011. I was, um, for the first two years in the Senate, I was a member of the four-member Republican minority. I remember that. That was, the, yes. that was you, Senator Coghill, Senator Bundy. No, Senator Huggins and Senator Dyson. Oh, that's right. He was... Right, because... Senator uh, Bundy had retired by then. Right, right. Yes. So I remember that's when I first got involved in, in politics, and okay, I remember thinking, um, why, why are there only four? I didn't really know much. I was like, why are there only four of them? <laughs> yes. That was yeah. Back in the RDC, you know, when the Aces discussion was really big, and right, and the bipartisan coalition mm-hmm. in the Senate, right. So, so you've been there for a while, and you were. You know, I think you were chair of resources, right? Well, at first, of course, the first Later. two years I didn't. Um, but then in 2012 or 2013, actually, uh, the Senate became controlled predominantly by Republicans. Then, yes, I became the chair of the resources committee. But but this is your first time, I guess, in a real because leadership, they, I guess that's rules chair, majority leader, finance co-chairs or president. Is that kind You're of correct. The, it's five members in the Senate. You are correct. So what's what's it been like? I mean, it was just kind of crazy. So much happened. I mean, I was down there and it was my first time being down there. And even people that have been there for 30 years said it always gets crazy. But this is just this one's really something we've never seen before, especially with the House not you know, organizing at first. But I mean, can you talk a little bit about what it's been like being Senate president in a very tumultuous time with a very divided you know, caucus on, on certain <clears throat> certain issues? Well, um, it has been challenging. Uh, folks. Apparently, some folks believe that I tell other senators how to vote and things like that, uh, which isn't true. Um, if you talk to Senator Stedman or, or Senator Stevens or Senator Coghill, they'll tell you nobody tells them how to vote. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> they, they have their own ideas about how to vote. Um, the goal that I've had is to keep the Republicans together to allow everyone to have an opportunity to speak their mind. We have caucus meetings every week, and they're one to two hours in length. Um, I'd love to be in one of those. They can be They can be rather contentious, but that's good. That's where the discussion about policy takes place. We take no votes in caucus. There's no voting that goes on, but debating the subjects do. And that's, of course, where the dividend uh, was was hotly discussed do you feel like you've been i mean you've obviously been targeted the governor at one point was doing ads months against you and months ago against you and different groups republican very conservative it's funny because it's groups that have you know in the past you're a very conservative person i I know you for a long time um and you became president and i think some folks in my view you get power and you either rise to the occasion and you and you do the you know right or you maybe abuse it and I, i i've told people this i think you've done really great job of being Senate president and, and, and working with everybody, the minority as well. But do you feel like you've been unfairly targeted or do you, th- do you think it's just politics? I mean, some of the stuff people have said about you has been pretty, pretty bad. Uh, it's on the internet and Facebook and there's been, it's not just from the governor at one point was doing those ads. Um, I mean, has that been, do you ignore that? Do you see it? I mean, obviously you know about it. How, how is it dealing with that? Especially from some of the folk, folks in the past have been, you know, your supporters. So I've been a Republican since 
I could vote uh, my whole life. Uh, before I could vote, I was uh, the f- in the first group of Senate interns for Senator Ted Stevens. So I went to D.C. and worked in his office and came back. And before I left for college, I worked on his first campaign. He had not yet been elected. He had been appointed and served for two years in the U.S. Senate and then ran that first year. Wow. Um, so that was really fun. Um, I am a big fan of political parties. I believe they are very important. They um, are they are created when people of similar views get together, and they discuss issues. They find commonality, and it's a way of people identifying what their own core values are. So that when uh, a person who wants to run for election puts their name up, the voters go, okay, they affiliate with this political party. I kind of know what they stand for because there's a party platform. Mm-hmm. The problem comes when you get into real life and you're in a group of people that are not all of the same political party. You can't just stand there and say, well, I have these core values and this is all I'm going to agree to because that stops all discussion. People have people have tried that. People have tried it that. It doesn't end it doesn't end well. Right. It, but what is needed is what, when there is conflict on policy, there has to be communication with everyone, with all viewpoints, and then you come to compromise. Otherwise, we end up moving, instead of into conversation, we move into combat. And that's really what we see these days. Not just in Alaska, I mean nationally. Oh, absolutely. It's become a almost like a team sport, and it's any, any means to win. Very polarized people. But that's not how you move policy forward. So over the last three years, I've had some legislation related to health care, legislation that has actually been stalled for several years in the Senate. And I actually had House Democrats come to me and say, I agree with this policy. Would you mind if I carried your bill on the House side? You have it on the Senate side, I'll have it on the House side, and we'll bring it together at the end. And as a result of that, I've gotten three or four bills passed. Positive health care policy to open the door for more clinicians to be available to serve people, but also help lower the cost of health care. And I've done it in collaboration with House Democrats. That's what that's what we have to continue to do to move good policy forward. I don't know who said this, but I've, I've repeated it a lot. They say you can get a lot done in politics if you don't care who takes the credit. Exactly. <laughs> and so when it came down to it, I did swallow hard and say, okay, let's let this House bill be the vehicle. And the House Democrat has his name, his or her name, on legislation that I had been promoting for several years. That's fine. The fact is that Alaskans now benefit from that policy. So that's been my approach. There are Republicans that disagree with that. They, They say, oh, you're a rhino now. Not at all. I still believe in every plank in the Alaska Republican Party platform. To move things forward, I have to be able to work with everyone who's at the table. So that means Tom Baggage, who is the minority leader in the Senate. We have good communication. That doesn't mean we agree on everything, but we've found areas where we do agree and we can move forward. Representative Edgman, delightful person to work with. He and I have a lot in common. We're both lifelong Alaskans. We plan to die here. 
We don't agree on everything, but we found areas we do agree on, and that way we can move forward. But I think in the past we've seen legislatures where the Senate president and the speaker don't get along. Oh, absolutely. And it, and it, and it be, yes. That's another kind of different problem. And and to, to be honest, uh, I could name Senate presidents who would not have tolerated a split caucus. They would have said, this is the way it's going to be. I'm the president. You're going to do what I tell you. That is not my style, and it is not what I've been doing. When, when you became Senate president, did you – I mean, there's still plenty of Senate presidents around. Did you talk to any of them or – you know, I didn't. Um, I have, of course, um, Gary Stevens, who's right, there. Yeah, some are still in the right? yeah, legislature. Yes, but he doesn't, you know, he doesn't come around and say, well, I think you should do this. Um, I've asked him a few times, so how would you handle this? And he's offered some thoughts, but he doesn't tell me how to do things. Yeah, I did a podcast with him in here a few months oh, ago. Oh, yes. We talked about, um, I guess there's been a kind of a deal where Senate presidents usually are no more than two terms. And he was two years, two, which is one term. Yes. Well, he served. Two, I guess two in a row. So four yes, years. Yes, he did. Yeah. He, he was saying that that's been. It was. We talked a lot about being Senate president, and he said a lot of it was basically really kind of strange conflict resolution. <laughs> that's a good term for it. Conflict resolution. Yes. Yes. And then there's a lot of administrative things to do. I mean, people say to me, "I hope you're getting a break." As the Senate president doesn't get a break. There's constantly at least administrative things to do. And, of course, this year there have been other things to do as well. So you, we were talking earlier about kind of the d- divide. And I was going to ask you about the, the Wasilla uh, situation. That mm. was that was definitely – I was down – I was mm-hmm. here, so I went to that. And I don't know. It was – did you see any of the videos? It got, it got pretty weird. I saw some of your videos when you were there the, the, in Wasilla. The, the one day I missed because oh. it was – they opened on a Monday. Yeah. And it was, I was there and it was kind of, you know, there were certain senators there and representatives and it was kind of weird. And the next day was not as weird. It was kind of more just very brief. So the third day I said, I'm not going to go. It's going to be, you know, nothing's going to happen. And that was when they had the takeover, the big protest. Gotcha. And, and I said, damn it. Yes. <laughs> the one day I should have been there. But I mean, so you, you knew some folks were going, uh, and I don't think anybody really knew who was going until, until the, I mean, I, I was there in the parking lot and I saw this old Honda or maybe Subaru and it was like smoking. And I was like, oh my God, it's Tammy Wilson. <laughs> it was really crazy. But I mean, th- th- that seemed to be a big, at the time, core issue for some folks who say, you know, you have to go here and other folks are going to Juno. I mean, was that, how was it managing that? I mean, that must have been difficult being in the, you know, Senate president. So, Jeff, what you bring up is a very important core issue that that I think Alaskans need to think about. Uh, certainly, legislators need to as well. It's a civics topic. Mm-hmm. What? How is our government created? What is it meant to be? We have three branches of government, and they are separate. And they're actually set up that way to balance each other. Now, it's probably been a very long time since most people have read the Federalist Papers. But if you ever take a moment and look back at Federalist Paper 51, it was written by Madison, it talks about the separation of powers. And in it, there's actually, um, it talks about not that, that the legislative branch is the preeminent branch. It creates law. The governor enforces the law, pardon me, the executive branch, in this case the governor, or could be the president, and the judicial branch determines whether that law has been properly applied. The legislative branch has authority over itself. 
And Madison even opines in 51 that if the executive branch starts reaching into the legislative branch, that is a very bad thing. We have a Republican form of government. That means the legislative branch is the one that makes the laws, that represents the people, and has preeminence. So I will always defend that legislative preeminent authority over ourselves. That's what you saw happening this session, not only with where we meet, but the education forward funding. That was a law that was passed by the legislature, signed into law by a governor, and was available to be enforced. I have a difference of opinion with the governor about whether he is obligated to enforce that law. Consequently, you'll see the legislature standing on our authority saying that is enforceable, pre-funding of education. One of the things I said was, it seems to me that some legislators, they see the governor as their boss when it's really, like you said, the legislature is their own branch. And what I told people was, okay, if the governor can call this legislature to anywhere anywhere he wants what's to prevent him from saying go to adac go go to point hope go go you know go to these accutan and then stick it stick them there <laughs> nothing's preventing that in the interpretation some people have said is the right way so yes i i, I totally agree with you i mean the legislature sh- shouldn't um be at the behest of the governor it should be very independent and um, is, there, is that lawsuit still? There's a lawsuit about that, right? The education lawsuit was actually the, heard in the, the Juno courtroom about, uh, let's see, probably two weeks ago. Maybe it was even last week. I can't recall. I was present for it. but um, And the, the court system has um, said that they will reach a decision by November 8th. What, what about this uh, session, location of the session lawsuit? The location of the session lawsuit is also going forward. Uh, Mr. Vesey has sued Bryce Edgman and myself, and that is in the court system right now. There hasn't been a hearing or anything. Um, of course, we've asked that it be dismissed because it's a moot point. Um, the governor changed the location. But but the important thing, I think, for the public to, to realize, um, Jeff, is that if the governor can dictate to the legislature and the legislature does what some Republicans are telling me to do, obey the governor, submit to the governor. We have nothing more than a a dictatorship. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy that people fully empowers uh, uh, the governor. Already, the Alaska governor has more authority than any other governor in the United States. And and to say that the legislature should simply do what he says you now have a monarch or a dictator. And, and that's not really the Republican form of government that we're set up to well, have. And, that, and that's, you know, I, I write things and I took a position of saying this is the right thing. And, you know, people email me and message me and, I mean, just really, you know, some crazy stuff. I'm sure you, get, you probably get 100 times more than I get. But um, it, it just seems to me so illogical that the governor can dictate how the it'd be like the courts telling the governor, you know, or somebody where to go or how to do their how to do their job. It just wouldn't. Uh, wouldn't fly. Sure. I, I get it that people really like this governor. That's great. But the, the governor is not going to be there for a lifetime. Well, and the question is, what about and the next so governor? Then, yes, the next governor. Exactly. This governor has done some good things. The, the attention he has brought to, to, to governor, government spending has been very good. I think the citizens now realize that there's a trade-off between the dividend and, and what can be mm-hmm. funded. 
that discussion has really helped the public be much more informed. That's great. Uh, but we need to continue to have the conversation and it needs to be civil. To that end, um, Interestingly, you know, I mentioned that I had been in Ted Stevens' first group of interns. Well, the 1970s or? Well, yeah, it was in the 70s. I'm not going to tell you exactly what year, but anyway. I can look it up. You know, the fun thing is now I get to work with his youngest son, Ben, who is the chief of staff for the governor. And um, that's been very enjoyable. Uh, Ben brings a really good uh, skill in in communication and in compromise, proposing different uh, ways we could meet in the middle, so to speak. And he's been having meetings with uh, the speaker, myself, uh, Tom Begich, and Lance Pruitt, and we've been making a lot of headway. So I really appreciate the efforts um, of the chief of staff. Um, and it's, it is kind of ironic for me, having been an intern for his father and, and now to be working with and, the youngest son. And a former Senate president. And a right. former Senate president, yes, which I often point out to him, well, Ben, what would you do if you were in my position on this? <laughs> He doesn't funny. comment yeah. then. Yeah, that's usually would, the end of that. What would you do? <laughs> yeah, right. So the other thing I want to ask you about, obviously, the, the big thing recently in the news was um, Representative Shaw's not being confirmed and now Representative Revac. Um, I guess that's slated for November. Um, I think the I'm, I'm, I've heard some things because I follow this stuff kind of close and um, I don't want you to maybe go into the, the details of the meeting, but maybe talk a little bit about why Representative Shaw wasn't confirmed. And then, you know, going forward with Representative Revac, how that's how that's going to shake out, maybe, or how that's how that's looking to happen in the vote. Well, simply, um, Jeff, you know, the the first person that was um, nominated didn't get the support, um, and so uh, was not confirmed. Um, interestingly, a year ago, this time of year, my husband and I were going door to door with Representative Revac. Of course, he wasn't the representative at that time. He was mm-hmm. running for it for the first I time. I remember that because I was doing the independent expenditure thing, and I remember seeing a picture or something. of because. Yeah. Um, so um, got to know him, of course, knew what his core values were uh, before that, which is why I took the time to go door to door with him and, um, and advocate for him. During the session, um, Representative Rebeck was not uh, a stranger to my office. Uh, often coming and asking, well, why is the Senate going forward with this policy? It could, shouldn't you be doing this? I mean, just wanting to kind of debate the issues, also find out how the rules worked in certain areas. And I wasn't the only senator that, that he would visit. Uh, I can name several others to say nothing, of course, of his own Senator Birch. Very um, curious young man, wanting to do the right thing, wanting to learn as much as he could, as quickly as he could. Because going to the legislature is like going to graduate school every single day. The subjects are so diverse. I mean, you know that. You've been there. Um, it's extremely complex. And, and Representative Revac was very curious and very attentive to detail. So... Um, I appreciate that. I know that um, he has been visiting with um, the senators in the body, uh, the Republicans, right? Um, and so we'll see how um, how our interview with him goes. We'll do the exact same process again that we did for the first nominee. So we'll be meeting with him, interviewing him, asking him some pretty tough questions. Um, it's, it's a little ironic that, uh, you know, Senator Birch, I was very close with him for a long time, and 
we did a podcast early around the same time we did one, and and he had had been outspoken on his position on the dividend from from even back to the election about about you know the dividend should should be the last thing we should fund the budget we should try to avoid taxes and have a capital budget. Um, his position was so clear, and it's kind of ironic that when 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 Senator du- Senator Dunleavy then resigned to, to run for governor. Governor Walker at the time appointed Randall Kowaki, who who I said was a bad decision because he's very different than Dunleavy. He was rejected. I mean, how, how much do you think the the governor's responsibility is to appoint somebody who? Do you think they should be similar, or do you think they should have just they can appoint whoever they want, and then it's up to the Republicans or the Democrats in either body to to confirm? Funny enough, I I find out if if it's an independent, right? If it's a independent, I was like, how does that work? And if there's no independence, they can pick anybody they want. Did you know that? That's pretty interesting, isn't it? So if an independent person needs to be replaced, they can literally pick anybody. And and if there's no independent in that bo- either body, they can, they can just say, here you go. Well, I guess, you know, a lot of people that run as independents are running under the covering of the Democrat Party. Well, they've endorsed so- on the you know, state level, they've endorsed... Elise Galvin and Al Gross, who are both yeah. independents running in their primary. They've already endorsed them. Yes. So they seem to be going into the independent yeah. world. It's kind of yeah. weird. Democratic parties endorsing non-Democrats. Yes. Yes. Um, well, the way the law is now, that's how that's how it works. The governor does get to appoint someone. Um, interestingly, I, re- I talked about Federalist Paper number 51. Mm-hmm. Madison actually makes a comment about that. Really? That, that the, the executive branch should not have any reach into the membership of the legislative branch. It's a very, in, very interesting sentence. He doesn't elaborate on, on it a lot. Um, but uh, regardless, you know, uh, it's actually pretty equal. Uh, the governor certainly makes that appointment from the recommendations coming from the parties committee, right? But the Senate, in this case, the Senate, Republicans have an equal authority in terms of confirmation or not. Which, which you know, I was at that meeting, and mm-hmm. I don't know if you read what I what I wrote, but it was pretty strange, the whole way it kind of went down. Oh, and oh the committee meeting. The committee meeting. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, it was yes. very kind of secretive, and they wouldn't let me in, and, and, you know, there was people voting that were also applying, and they were in the interviews of the people that were, it's kind of strange. So, since this has happened, I mean, if you look b- back... There was a Dunleavy um, fill, filling that was kind of a big mess. There was the um, Sharon, you know, Nancy Dahlstrom situation, which was another mess because districts 13 and 14 are one district, and they were fighting about if the other district could have a say. And and then there was the um, the District 40, Dean Wesley. That was another. It seems like most of these recently have been kind of very, very um, messy. Yes. So I almost think it's better if, if they just went to a special election. I don't know if... If you've thought about that, or it might, might make more sense to just have a special election in 60 or 90 days. Yeah, that's kind of an interesting idea. I actually hadn't thought about alternatives to this process. Um, Bert Stedman was appointed by Murkowski. Mm-hmm. Gary Stevens was appointed to the Senate. I forget which governor appointed him. It was Murkowski. Was it Murkowski? Cause, cause... John Coghill was appointed. I believe Palin appointed him to the Senate. No, I think I think it was because I, I did a story and I oh, went okay. back and looked, and so Murkowski appointed three because two people, Alan Osterman, and who was the other one, they went took took jobs with him, so he ended up appointing those two, and then there was Palin appointed Egan. Oh yes, that, that was me- that was messy. Mm-hmm. It was very because there oh, was yes, a whole it was. fight about who she could appoint and right. Um, but Dennis served for ten years honorably 
I enjoyed working with Dennis Egan. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I interacted with. I, ever, yeah. when I went to skits a couple times. I, he's a funny guy. He's a yes, yes, and and easy to talk to. May not agree with him, mm-hmm. but yeah, you can talk to him. Well, we're about thirty-five minutes. I want to just one more question about sure um, next session. It's it's coming up here in January. Um, do you foresee the same kind of the dividend, the budget, the crime issues? I guess more or less been. The bill passed to repeal SB 91. So I guess what do you see as the big issues in the next session? Well, in terms of crime, rehabilitation is still um, not addressed. We can improve our rehabilitation uh, and, and behavioral health services for folks that are incarcerated as they come out. Um, the dividend, we have a permanent fund working group that's been working mm-hmm. on that subject, and they're going to come forward with a paper with some recommendations. I believe that some of those recommendations are going to be embraced by finance committee co-chairs who will have legislation ready to go right from the very start. Um, it appears, you may have already surmised this, very unlikely, frankly impossible, for us to have a special session, a third one before the end of this year. Right, because you have to give a 30-day notice. and 30-day get... notice and the holidays are coming up, et cetera. Um, so those are big issues. And then um, there's still the typical stuff. Um, we've got still a lot of, of sexual assault issues going on. Uh, we have homelessness. There'll be some discussion about that. We have the Pioneer Home and the fees that have gone up so high I c- there. I couldn't believe some, somebody was going from, I read it was like 7000 a month. To, to 15 to fit, yeah, or something? I couldn't believe it. Yes, yes. We need to wrestle that one. We need to figure out what we're going to do there. Education funding. We need to figure out how to improve the outcomes and also how best to fund it. So, mm-hmm. But these are all the meat and potato things that we should be focused on. So they're the big things that will move Alaska forward and make it as actually open for business and inviting to businesses and people. How much do you think the fact that it's an election year is going to factor into i mean the election session is always different than the non-election session well it'll probably be less likely that we go overtime so i think people will be jumping right in and getting to work not that we didn't last time um the house took a long time to get organized Mm -hmm. they are organized now they're ready to go at the beginning of session so that's good i guess last thing uh there's this oil tax initiative that's been i guess they turned in their signatures so they haven't been approved yet, but if they do get approved, they would need to gather the signatures by the beginning of the session in order to appear on next year's ballot. If they don't do that, they have to wait till after. But if they were to get the signatures, would it be something the legislature would look at? Because I know if they pass similar legislation, uh, like the ethics bill Jason Grant had done, they had, there was an accompanying initiative they were trying to get passed. Is that something the legislature might look at? or As we've looked at the initiative, It is an extremely broad initiative. For us to pass substantially similar legislation would be virtually impossible in one session. Remember, for the most part, uh, even when I was successful in repealing the cashable credits, and Representative Tarr and I worked hard on negotiating negotiating that at the very end, it took three years from when I first had the working group on cashable credits to when we finally had everything passed that repealed them all. So you can't do those kinds of heavy lifts in a single 90 days, especially with um, a House body that is largely new representatives. They don't know tax policy at all. So um, I don't see that being an opportunity. Well, I've always said that, you know, we've, we've changed our tax system every five or 10 years, sometimes substantially. And, and now it's almost, you know, and I was 
folks are frustrated and there's different reasons in the budget and the dividend, but now it's now it's like tax policy by initiative. Which, yes. which I don't even think we should have bonds on the ballot because I don't think anybody actually reads them. They just kind of glance at them. And you've seen the bonds are several paragraphs. And, and there's a lot more paragraphs behind them that right. you don't even see. But if it's a feel-good project, everyone likes parks, right? But they don't think about what it costs and what it costs to maintain them after you create them and all of that. Um, you're right. Public policy, especially tax policy, um, should not be decided. And you're, you're limited, I think, to 200 words. But they, you know, I did a podcast actually last week mm. with Robin Brenna. Okay, I haven't, I haven't posted it yet. Ah. But we had a really good discussion. Very smart. I think he feels very strongly about what he's trying to do. But it's been his life's uh, income, oh, right? Yeah. He's he's done pretty well. <laughs> done pretty well he's, at he's, it. It's mm-hmm. funny. I told him. I said, "You were Brenna Bell Clarkson, yes, Kevin Clarkson. That's right. Now you're Brenna Bell Walker, yes, Bill Walker. I mean." So place is churning out some high-level people. Yes. Well, Senator Giesel, I want to thank you for coming in. This is the second time. So sure. My pleasure. I hope to do another one, maybe next session. I'm trying to get back to Juno. That's my hmm. that's my plan. All right. I think it's going to be, um, at least in my case, a lot of fun next year. Okay. To, to observe. <laughs> um, thanks for coming in. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Okay. All right, uh, folks, if you have an idea for doing a podcast or want to do a podcast with me, uh, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.